Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Thank you for joining me this Thursday, December 7th. It is a big day for us. Bedalia's back. Thank you. So nice to have you back, Lady B. Lady B's had a couple of surgeries. She is back today part time. So let's all take very good care of her today. All right. We will be gentle today and not put any stress in her life. Bedelia, it is so nice to hear your voice again. I miss you uh, and I miss uh, the audience, the listeners uh, and all your guests, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you back again and just, you know, take it easy. And if you feel like pushing a button, push it. If you don't feel like pushing the button, just tell me and we'll figure something else out. OK, OK, <laughs> All right. OK, uh, let's get started on some of what's happening today. Uh, the White House, I mean, I'm sure you've heard by now that Norman Lear died at the age of 101. Um, he was a really significant guy. This, you know, for those of you who are younger, you don't realize how he changed television. I mean, this is a guy all in the family. Good Times, which was set in the projects. I mean, this guy created sitcoms that took on uh, racism, homophobia, uh, all of the concerns of the day and did it in a way that people found palatable because he did it in a way that made everybody laugh. He did One Day at a Time, which was a sitcom uh, built around the radical concept of a single mother raising two daughters <laughs> all in the family made uh, its main its main character, a racist and a homophobe. Um, good times, as I said, was set in the projects, in a housing project. Norman Lear was um, was an amazing man who single-handedly changed television. And in part, the White House said Norman Lear was a transformational force in American culture whose trailblazing shows redefine television with courage, conscience, and humor, opening our nation's eyes and often our hearts. Man, could we use some of that today. A Norman Lear died at 101 in his mid to late 90s. He, I mean, he was, by all accounts of the people who were around him, he was working and on top of things at least until he was 100 in his 90s, in his late 90s, he um, recreated his hit sitcom One Day at a Time, the one about the single mother raising a couple of daughters. Uh, it was redone um, with a Hispanic family. It um, didn't stay on television as long as some of his earlier work, but was, he was still breaking ground um, at the end of what turned out to be like a 75-year career. Hats off to a man who um, really changed the conversation. If you were not alive during the, some of those shows, I mean, it's hard for me to put into words how groundbreaking and radical they were. Nobody ever joked about that kind of stuff before. And, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure 
that we could joke about it now. I, I wonder if Norman Lear were just starting off now, how he would tackle the rancor that exists in this country today. Um, also, some good news. COVID is returning, uh, according to uh, medical reports, just in time for the holidays. You know, uh, researchers have learned that the best way to tell when a big outbreak of COVID is coming is to monitor wastewater. Uh, because apparently uh, COVID virus shows up in our uh, waste bef- before it really blows up big in our communities. And uh, right now, the research indicates that it looks like um, around Christmas time. Yay! Uh, it, we're going to see a big resurgence and that there'll be another wave around New Year's. Part of the problem, part, the, this is kind of the good news, bad news. The booster that's out now works on this new, new, new variant. I think it's called JN1. The booster works, but um, people, like I don't know, maybe people are tired of getting their shots, or maybe they feel that, you know, maybe they've had COVID once and have gotten a couple of boosters, and medical science is very upset that um, more people are not getting this new booster. Uh, According to the Centers for Disease Control, only 16% of adults and 7% of children have gotten the new booster. I know you're tired of going, but it doesn't matter because this disease keeps changing. And yes, if you've, especially if you've had it once, you've had a couple of boosters, you know, you're kind of counting on the fact that if you get it, it will be not so bad. But as the virus changes, your protection needs to change, okay? Hey, you're talking to a woman who's had COVID four times, and none of those four times have I been hospitalized. I was looking at my little card. I think I've gotten eight COVID shots. My little card, it's like a, it's, you know, I, I, I should get a free one. Like, you know how you get so many sandwiches and you get a free sandwich? Uh, the next time there's a new COVID vaccine, I should be eligible for a free one because I'm pretty sure I've had eight shots so far. But that's part of the reason why when I do get felled by this little bug that seems to have an affinity for me. You know, the last time I had it, I was just sick for two or three days and hardly sick at all, you know, Um So please, please, please take some time over the next week, get to your pharmacy, get to your doctor, go to um, a doc in the box, wherever you get your vaccines, please go get this one. Okay. And, you know, there was a, there was a real uptick after Thanksgiving and, you know, for the holidays, everybody's going to be on planes Everybody's going to be sitting around the table, breathing heavily on each other. I mean, come on. It's a recipe for COVID. So get your shot. And that way, at least if you come down with it, you know, it'll be a lesser illness than maybe it otherwise would have been. Um, I didn't mention this yesterday, mostly because I didn't care. 
um, the fact that Kevin McCarthy is uh, retiring from the House of Representatives. But what's interesting about this, oh, yes, he he wrote a big, uh, I read it today, it was published today. He wrote this big opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal that was like, gag me with a spoon. It was like, oh, my life has been so great and everything's been so great and Congress has been so great. And, you know, when I was younger and selling sandwiches, it was so great and everything was so great and my life is so perfect. And I just want it to be more perfect and it's going to continue to be perfect even after I leave Congress. That's um. That's my take on what he wrote. But here's the, in, the interesting part of this. Unlike Patrick McHenry, the um, remember the guy who was speaker for like 15 minutes? Well, he was speaker pro tem, trying to hold things together until they elected our good friend Mike Johnson. He uh, also announced he's not going to run for re-election, but he's going to fill out his term. He is going to stay in Congress until his term is up. Kevin McCarthy is going home for the holidays and he ain't coming back. Which means Republicans are going to be down another vote. You know, they kicked George Santos out and that vote, I believe, to replace him is February 13th. February 13th or February 16th, mid-February. And um, I would imagine the people of that district are so teed off that that might actually change hands and become a Democratic seat. So uh, Kevin McCarthy just deciding to pull up stakes and leave is uh, not doing Mike Johnson any favors. That um, Republican margin is getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. Hopefully, after the 2024 election, it will be non-existent. But anyway, uh, Kevin McCarthy not only wrote an obnoxious op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about how he's such a golden man, he apparently also released a video that was just a saccharine. They played it on MSNBC last night. Jamie Raskin was sitting in or with being interviewed by Alex Wagner. And uh, they played just a little bit of it. And then Jamie Raskin uh, told Alex Wagner what he thought of it. Uh, Now, I do have to issue a warning. If you are easily nauseated, uh, if platitudes and uh, fake sunshine make you ill, Uh, You may want to close your ears for the next 33 seconds, though it's really probably not all the 33 seconds because we're just going to hear the like 10 or 15 from McCarthy. And then we're going to hear from Jamie Raskin. But it is coma inducing in its sugar content. Listen to this. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. We did our part. And when the stakes were the highest, we rose to the challenge. We were willing to risk it all, no matter the odds, no matter the personal cost. Simply put, we did the right thing. He clearly did the wrong thing. And when the stakes were highest, he completely fell apart. And the only part I agree with is when he says he risked it all, which is true if all means our democracy, our Constitution and the American Republic. Yeah. We did our part. Did you really, though, Kevin? (laughs) 
did you really do your part? And if you were so happy and so caring, why would you leave Congress in a way that is going to put the Republicans down one more vote? Interesting. Maybe just a little bit of a goodbye and I wish you all the worst of luck kind of a thing. I don't know. I don't know. Let's take a break. We'll be back to talk about more after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Stephanie Miller. Now we have a speaker, God Warrior, Handmaid's Tale. This gets weirder and weirder, the Mike Johnson story. Doesn't it? He's just a weird, bizarre, beat-up, lunch money victim that you know is just (laughs) trying to get his revenge. You can see that. You can read it on these guys. A little twerp that just got punked in middle school and elementary school, and now he's got power. You can just see it. It jumps all off him. Stephanie Miller, weekday mornings, 8 to 11, on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You know, I I forgot to mention that there was a Republican presidential debate last night. That is how unimportant it was. One of the commentators that I read said yesterday, you could tell how unimportant it was by the fact that they decided to air it on News Nation. You know, News Nation that broadcasts out of the WGN-TV building, News Nation that used to be WGN America when WGN, remember when WGN was like one of the first super stations where all the programming was available across the country? I mean, GN had a super station. I guess they used to, for a while, they used to replay some of the newscasts because um, when I first came to Chicago, I briefly, and I mean like from July to November before I went to Channel 7, I was a reporter and fill-in anchor at uh, Channel 9 WGN. And I used to get fan mail from around the country. So clearly they were using some of our local newscasts on uh, WGN America, but that's now News Nation. And uh, one of the columnists I was reading said that you, you really know the RNC has given up um, because they realize that nobody on the debate stage is going to be the next Republican president. Because I didn't realize this. I mean, I knew News Nation wasn't getting a good audience. Remember, I actually had some friends that worked for it when it first went on the air because, you know, it was going to be this, you know, sort of be kind of neutral, unbiased, you know, kind of like a a CNN, maybe without the reporters around the world. But it was going to be, you know, this unbiased um, just bringing you the facts and people are craving this, you know, they're tired of partisanship. And I had a couple of friends that went to work there and um, they didn't last very long. Remember when it became public knowledge, nobody at News Nation was told about this, even its highest 
local executive, uh, but the company owners had decided that um, they wanted input. They wanted to hire a consultant, and they hired a guy from Fox. And that was the first indication. The guy who owns the company behind News Nation was a big Trump supporter, made uh, one of their anchors sit down with Donald Trump and only ask softball questions. Uh, News News Nation, where um, Chris Cuomo, who was kicked out of CNN, went to News Nation. And I don't watch his show, (laughs) me and everybody else. But apparently Chris Cuomo has become quite bitter at what he went through, what his brother, the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, went through. And Chris is uh, is kind of going to the dark side. He gave an interview recently where he said that um, he could envision potentially, possibly voting for Donald Trump for president. What? 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 Life can uh, hand you some lemons sometimes, and sometimes people don't know how to make lemonade. So anyway, this article said that um, looking at the ratings, there was one month, um, I guess it was a year ago, October or something, where News Nation had the best ratings it's ever had. And um, now, you know, about you know three million people used to watch Rachel Maddow on a good night. Um, and sadly, more than that, watched Tucker Carlson. News Nation, their best ratings month so far, they had 67,000 viewers. 67,000 viewers. And that was their best, the highest number they'd ever hit. So... um The RNC putting this debate on News Nation was essentially the RNC burying this debate. I guess we can all come away with the decision that Nikki Haley is um, leading the second tier. (laughs) Because everybody, pretty much everybody except Chris Christie, there were only four of them left. Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley and Chris Christie. And uh, Ron and Vivek were going after Nikki until Chris Christie was like, dudes, what are you doing? You're like, you're implying this woman is stupid and she's not. And also, none of, except for me, none of you are addressing the elephant in the room. You know, go after Nikki Haley if you want to. But the person we should be talking about is Donald Trump. That's the person that we have to beat to get on the ticket. Not Nikki Haley, not Ron DeSantis, not Vivek Ramaswamy. I did not watch the whole thing. But it's it was almost like Chris Christie was living in the real world and the rest of them were living in Earth 2.0, where they didn't... They didn't want to say Donald Trump's name. They didn't want to talk about him at all. They pretended he didn't exist. You know, if you really, if you're Nikki Haley and you really want to be president, 
at some point you're going to have to enter the real world. But Nikki Haley is doing what she always does, which is she um, doesn't want to alienate any of Donald Trump's followers, but she wants to appeal to the people who hate Donald Trump. And that is a very difficult path to walk. And she doesn't do it very well. Anyway, I want to share a little bit about um, what Chris Christie was saying. Listen to this. So do I think he was kidding when he said he was a dictator? All you have to do is look at the history. And that's why failing to speak out against him, making excuses for him, pretending that somehow he's a victim, empowers him. You want to know why those poll numbers are where they are? Because folks like these three guys on the stage make it seem like his conduct is acceptable. Let me make it clear. His conduct is unacceptable. He's unfit. And be careful of what you're going to get. If you ever got another Donald Trump term, he's letting you know, I am your retribution. He will only be, Elizabeth, he will only be his own retribution. He doesn't care for the American people. It's Donald Trump first. Thank you, Governor Christie. Governor DeSantis. Did you hear the crowd? It was kind of interesting. Yes, there were definitely people applauding that, but there was a chorus of boos coming from the audience as well. What the heck? What the heck? I don't know. Uh, You know, at one point, I I will say, um, you know, Chris Christie jumped in and said, you know, stop going after Nikki Haley. You know, if you want to go after her policies, that's fine. But don't you're you both are talking about her and saying that she's stupid and she's not. And, you know, I appreciate that. Um, but he also looked at him and said, like, guys, what are you doing? There's only one thing we should be talking about tonight and none of you will go there. And they didn't. They didn't want to. They want to pretend they want to pretend i don't think it's going to get them anywhere let's take a break and we're going to find out what's going on in wisconsin right after this this is chicago's progressive talk 8 20 a.m wcpt willow springs and online at wcpt 820.com where facts matter Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Our good friend Pat Kreitlow joins us. He, of course, uh, you can find all of his reporting in Up North News. If you are on your computer, you can go to upnorthnewswi.com. And uh, it is all of the political news and other news that is of interest in Wisconsin. And Pat, uh, it has been a long time. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you, Joan. And, and looking forward to uh, some time off with my uh, daughters and, and their kids over the Christmas period. So all is well over it, uh, on, on this side of things. Up excellent. Excellent. Well, the only problem with our not talking for a while is that we probably have too much ground to cover of everything that has (laughs) been happening in Wisconsin. So I don't know. I suppose at the end, if we if we could do maybe a lightning round at the end where you just like give me one word answers (laughs) and I'll just fire questions at you. But first, um, the most recent news that I've seen is um, uh, some electors that uh, thought they could get 
trump the presidency have now uh, put their tails between their legs and uh, legally speaking, of course, and um, are telling the world that Joe Biden is the legal president. Tell us about that. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting turn of events here. For the longest time of the seven states where Trump and his minions organized fake electors, people would have told you Wisconsin was last on that list in terms of seeking some kind of justice or or just taking any kind of action about this attempt to overturn the election. But with the settlement of a civil lawsuit, they quickly rocketed to the top of the list as I see it. Again, this was a civil lawsuit brought by two of the rightful Biden electors and others accusing them, uh, the fake electors, of trying to defraud the voters. And a settlement was reached that was filed in Dane County Circuit Court this week in Madison, where they now become the first group of fake electors to legally rescind their claims about Donald Trump, you know, winning in their state. They agree not to be electors in 2024. They agree not to be electors in any election when Donald Trump is on the ballot. And they have to cooperate with the Department of Justice as they continue working their way up the chain of command, looking into these efforts to overturn the election. So while these are not criminal charges, there's not criminal consequences, these people have their reputations forever stained politically, and they're going to you know, help with this continued investigation. I, I just think that this uh, suddenly made this the most effective pursuit of this fake elector scheme. Yeah, I mean, we've seen fake electors face uh, criminal penalties, um, but uh, this is the only case that I was aware of where this particular sort of strategy was pursued and uh, sure seems to have gotten results. Do you think is this one of those like Jenna Ellis situations where she was really, really sad and remorseful once she got caught? Um, are these people sad and remorseful because they they were held to account? Or do you think that if they hadn't promised to not be electors again, we would be seeing these names resurface for Donald Trump? Well, here's the interesting thing about that. And by the way, we have to make sure to give all credit to the great Patrick Marley, longtime reporter with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, who is now leading the pack at The Washington Post covering these kinds of stories, and he was the first to break this particular story, which included this detail. The case includes the discovery of um, text messages, I believe emails, uh, photographs from inside the room where the fake electors were meeting. And in the communications, you see that some of the electors um, are definitely of a mindset of, not really being sure if this was a good idea, that, that maybe there's something untoward about this, but they they go along. I think that might be part of the reason, too, why you're not seeing, you know, criminal prosecution mm-hmm. necessarily. Much like the Jenna Ellis thing, you're trying to work your way, like I said, up the up the food chain to get the big fish. And to do that, you know, the little fish may not face criminal prosecution. And remember, just because in other states they, they have been criminally charged, doesn't mean they're going to be convicted. They, they may get off scot-free, whereas here in Wisconsin, they're now going to cooperate with prosecutors. And it's, it's clear that um, these, are not the, these are not the Rudy Giuliani types. These, these are the Jenna Ellis types is what we have so far. 
Well, I think it's um, it's really fascinating and it's good news. And speaking of good news, um, the abortion front, the uh, that you guys were having to adhere to an 1849 abortion law, which is what happens if you don't clear that crap off the books. Um, but now it's been thrown out. Talk about that. And I know that uh, you wrote a really interesting article about this yourself, I think, that posted just yesterday. Yes. Uh, when we put it up, uh, it, it, it again brings people back to this notion. We've been talking about an 1849 abortion ban, and we need to make clear that, that it turns out that that's not really what that was. It was something that, worst case scenario, could be interpreted as a ban, but it's written in very arcane legalistic language for 1849. And the case, when it was challenged by the state attorney general, Josh Call and, and physicians and others, was really to ask a court, can you tell us if this is actually an abortion ban? And if you look at the language, I, I know when I first read it, I said, I'm not an attorney, but this sounds or this reads to me more like it's about feticide, and that makes more sense. You figure Wisconsin's early constitutional legal writers, they were actually pretty progressive for their time, setting up a free public education and things like that from the early days of statehood. It makes much more sense that they wrote in, into law that if you try to beat a woman to the point where she's no longer pregnant, that's a crime. And, you know, back then, it wasn't necessarily a crime everywhere. And that's what the law was about, was about feticide, not consensual abortion. And this Dane County judge this week formally issued that ruling. One of the district attorneys, a conservative prosecutor in Sheboygan County, immediately announced that he would appeal. He'll abide by the ruling for now, but he is going to appeal. It will probably end up before the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which is what made last April's election of Janet Protosewitz so important in flipping court control back to progressives for the first time in more than 15 years. Yeah, because one would hope that if this gets before, or perhaps I should say when it gets before the Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, we will see a ruling that upholds uh, this idea that, uh, yeah, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be following this rule. Yeah, and instead what the judge said is, is the law about abortion in Wisconsin, the one that actually takes precedence about consensual elective abortion, is a law that was written in 1985, and that law basically mirrors the protections in Roe v. Wade. So after you know over a year of confusion, we now have clarity in Wisconsin that abortion is as legal as it was under Roe v. Wade. Now, um, you mentioned Janet uh, Protasewicz. Is she going to be facing an impeachment process or not? Well, the the talk of maybe impeaching her had to deal with the other hot-button case uh, coming before the court. And that one actually now has come before the court. And that's about our, our rigged legislative and congressional maps, our gerrymandered maps. That case, the court took up directly. It didn't go through a, a county circuit court first. And so the the four progressive justices agreed to hear the case. And so oral arguments were held a couple of weeks back. They were quite contentious, as the three conservative justices uh, were quite aggressive in attempting to, if not defend the maps, then defend the 
process and, and say, you can't come back now and change the maps. But the people who brought the case to Protoseowitz and others said, well, just because there were challenges in the past doesn't mean we can't bring a new challenge on different grounds because something that's unconstitutional is still unconstitutional, <laughs> even if it hasn't been challenged on these grounds yet. Now, Republicans have talked about uh, possibly trying to impeach Justice Protosiewicz because she, you know, had the the courage, uh, the the temerity to defend the notion that we shouldn't have gerrymandered maps in Wisconsin. But it has long since been pointed out that there were plenty of conservative state Supreme Court justices in the past who also talked about their values and their feelings on issues. And so it would be it would be a very heavy lift. And I do not. See Gosh, Pat, are you saying that they were using a they were employing a double standard? I'm so shocked. I was as well. I know. But it, it appears that they no longer have the votes to do that. They would need we they barely have a two thirds majority in the state Senate. So they would need every Republican state senator to vote to convict. And that's that's just not going to happen based on, you know, the comments that have been made. So I think it's something that they they continue to talk about to keep certain parts of their base, you know, jazzed up. But I at the moment don't see anything realistic coming of this. Mm. Pat Kreitlow is the founder and editor of Up North News, where you can learn everything that's going on in Wisconsin. We are going to be taking a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. If you missed any of today's show, you can listen on SoundCloud or iTunes. Just search WCPT 820. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. You're listening to WCPT 820. Because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Pat Kreitlow is here. He is the founder and editor of Up North News. It is uh, where you get all of your news if you live in Wisconsin. It's where you uh, pay attention if you love people who live in Wisconsin or you just happen to think Wisconsin is a pretty cool place that you like to visit on weekends in the summer. Um, I want to talk to you more, Pat, about the gerrymandering. Um, we've known for a long time that the party in power uh, usually just can't resist trying to redraw maps uh, that favor themselves. Democrats have done it. Republicans have done it. There are a few places where there are nonpartisan maps, and uh, it would be really nice if that were the wave of the future and we could get rid of all of this other nonsense. But, I mean, I follow the uh, video postings of North Carolina Congressman Jeff Jackson, who has become even in his first and what will apparently be his only term in Congress, he's become a real social media star because he posts these videos that are like, OK, this is what happened today. And, you know, this is the part you saw. Let me tell you about the part you didn't see. And I'll, you know, update you when I have more information. He's just he's absolutely brilliant. And he did a post recently and he said, well, uh, this is going to be my only term in Congress. You know, the new maps have been. um uh, put out. And uh, he said, there's absolutely no way for me to win uh, a second term in Congress. Now, they probably he said, that, you know, the Republican Party may think they're getting rid of me. But actually, now I've decided to uh, run for um, state's attorney. So um, 
He is uh, he is not giving up. He is just shifting his focus. But, you know, gerrymandering has has real effects. I mean, we we see it everywhere. You know, you know, there are some uh, state uh, districts in Illinois and some wards in Chicago that, you know, resemble tortured creatures. You know, there's one uh, district that's referred to as the noodle. Um, Tell me about the gerrymandering in Wisconsin. Well, the, the gerrymandering here, and look, again, gerrymandering has been around for as long as the, the Republic, and it's always a question of at what point does it go too far? And for the longest time, the standard was it goes too far when it disenfranchises minority voters, and that, that makes sense under the Voting Rights Act. But with with the way that you can now study voter lists and put in all kinds of other data, you can now create these partisan gerrymanders that previously it was very tough to challenge them because basically you let politicians kind of do whatever they want to do. At what point does it cross the line? You know, the way that uh, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said back in 1964 that he can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Well, Mm -hmm. the same goes for a partisan gerrymander. At some point, it's just downright pornographic in, in terms of how diabolical it is. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court is being asked this time to decide, not based on the Voting Rights Act uh, from federal law, because that's already been struck down, but this time based on equal protection language in the Wisconsin Constitution. And if if this is upheld, you know, this will this will break some ground that the U.S. Supreme Court has up until now been unwilling to do. Um And we're fortunate, again, because you have a Supreme Court that doesn't have nearly the right-wing bent that it used to, Uh, same as, say, in Ohio, where, as I understand it, you know, some terribly gerrymandered maps there are going to be pushed through because one of the justices is is the son of the Republican governor. I mean, we don't have that level of, of corruption here. And maybe, just maybe, uh, by the end of this case, we will have broken some ground in determining when a partisan gerrymander, you know, has gone too far. Yeah. Do you think that if we're going to do at some point in the future, uh, if we're ever going to do fair maps, that that's going to have to be something legislated at the federal level? Because it just seems like human nature, it, we're asking too much of human nature for uh, state politicians who find themselves in power not to try to cement that power. Oh, I, but I, 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 I hate to say this, but I, I have so little faith that anything gets, gets done the way that, that, you know, Congress is composed most of the time, not all the time, witnessed the, the first two years of, of Joe Biden's term and everything that got done. But by and large, it's so difficult that at least you now have states, Iowa was one of the first, to set up a nonpartisan commission. Now, Wisconsin Republicans claimed that they that their new bill would create a nonpartisan commission, but buried in there was some language that basically said, well, but if we in the legislature don't like it, you know, we, we can essentially shoot it down, which, as it turns out, is exactly what they've done in a brand new bill that would abolish the Wisconsin Elections Commission, and it claims to turn the power over to the Secretary of State, who, by the way, happens to be a Democrat right now, Sarah Godlewski. 
But buried in the bill again is language saying, well, the standing committees of the legislature have the final say, which, again, is just it's just corrupt when you have already a model like Iowa that could take you in a more nonpartisan direction. Do they really think that nobody's going to read this? That no journalists are going to read it and report on that none of their fellow legislators are going to actually read the wording of this bill, that the judges who are eventually going to have to rule on it aren't going to read it. Do they really and my, my do they really think they're pulling a fast one here? What they're doing is messaging. And, and, you know, right now, if you were to talk to a certain set of the Republican base, they would say that they they genuinely believe that this is a nonpartisan redistricting bill and that this is a bill that gives power to the secretary of state because that's what they hear. That's what they hear from Republican uh, politicians. It's what they hear from right wing media. And then it's incumbent upon the rest of us in the media or in political discourse to say, no, 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 that's not quite right. And they don't want to believe you at first. But like you said, eventually people do read the bill. Remember, it always comes down to those three key words, read the bill. Uh-huh. And when you read the bill, you that's when the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> hey, what's um, what's this I hear about uh, pay raises uh, for University of Wisconsin employees being held up? What's going they on? They are being held up and for, for thousands upon thousands of University of Wisconsin system employees. These are raises that were approved in the state budget this earlier this year. So Republicans voted for these pay raises. But Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Boss, the most powerful Republican in in the state of Wisconsin, is holding them back. He's having a particular committee hold these pay raises, not for all state employees, just for UW, because he doesn't like that the UW system has DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and positions. And so he has um, been holding back on these raises. He's actually engineered a cut to the UW system budget until they get rid of the DEI positions, which is, again, it's either flat out racist on its face or it's just not in keeping with what his own business allies are telling him as more and more businesses embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion programs because they want a more diverse workforce. They want racial justice in the workforce. And who Robin Boss is carrying water for is not entirely clear, but at least now the Senate Republican leader, Devin Lemahue, is pushing back and saying, I think we need to let these raises go through. And so talks are underway, apparently, that could lead to um, Robin Boss essentially doing the same thing that Tommy Tuberville just did. I was did. just going to say, and, he's Tommy Tubervilleing you guys. <laughs> and, and that is back down and realize that you bit off more than you can chew. What's with Robin Voss? What's with him? What's uh, Again, it, he, he, we, is he your we Marjorie had, Taylor Greene? Is he your Matt Gaines? Well, is he your Lauren Boebert? No, he's our Mike Johnson. Oh. Mike Johnson is is showing you know these signs of wanting to be you know almost theocratic and in in much the same way from Robin Voss it's not so much from a, a religious standpoint but certainly from a social issues right wing standpoint 
that he he believes that the rest of the state and the state institutions should bend to his particular will. And that's why they continue, like they sent bills to Governor Tony Evers that would ban gender-affirming care. Governor Evers vetoed that yesterday or the day before and said, I'm always going to veto these bills. Robin Voss, you know, uh, will talk again about, you know, protecting the children. It's never been about protecting the children. It's never been about protecting the babies. It's been about control. And Governor Evers took away that control from him with his veto pen this week. So what's going to happen with these raises? Do you think he's going to get enough pushback? Do you think he's going to crumble and it's all just going to go forward? Is that what you see starting to happen now? I think he's looking for some kind of way to save face. Uh, and well, I he think can do what Tuberville ways- said. He can say, well, you know, I didn't get what I wanted. They didn't get what they wanted. It was a draw. <laughs> yeah, he's going to look for a way to, to do exactly that, to say something like that. The UW did did move some some money around. It moved some positions around. Governor Evers reallocated some funds in a way that I think would allow him to save face and say, well, at least those DEI positions aren't being paid for, you know, the way that they used to be and that those raises will ultimately go through. And I, I personally just rooted in my own my own feelings, think that it could happen in, in pretty short order here because everybody likes to look like a hero around Christmas time. Um, I, I could be wrong, but I think at this point, when you have the, the Senate Republican leader pushing back, I, I think you are, you should be looking for some resolution, hopefully in short order, for all these all these people who are counting on raises. And from Robin Voss, they're not even getting a membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. They're getting nothing. So you think if he relented and let all this happen right before the holidays, he in his at least in his own mind, he would be some kind of hero now. But but but, you know. If you start a fire and then put it out, you're still an arsonist, Pat. Yes, uh, unless, again, through the messaging, he tries to convince enough people otherwise. But frankly, I don't even think he'll try that. There's so many other issues that are going to come up between now and the 2024 elections that at some point he's going to take the L and he's going to move on. Do you think that one of the things, one of the questions I have when I see you know, like a Tommy Tuberville and um, what what's happening in your state. They clearly are playing to some group, whether it's a particular donor group, whether it is a a a very venal base that they're trying to appease. I mean, because, you know, you and I look at this and we say, do you understand how you're damaging the reputation of your party and that, you know, people are going to be turned away and you may be creating Democrats, but clearly I have to believe that Tommy and Robin feel that they are appeasing some group or playing to some audience. Do you think that's the case? Well, yeah, because it lines up with the the strategy of voter suppression. They know that they are in the minority. They know that their values are not mainstream American values and that if more people vote, they're not going to win. If fewer people vote, they win. If they muddy the waters through disagreement and dysfunction, they know that that will turn people off and fewer people will vote. And so for them, it's always been about winning and control, which oftentimes comes at the point of, again, 
getting your base as riled up as possible to show up on Election Day and trying to make everybody else throw up their hands and say, oh, why bother voting? Nothing ever seems to get better. That's how they that's always how they have achieved power in the past. Hmm. And that is the playbook that they will follow in 2024. Wow. Well, 2024 is going to be a very interesting year, and we are going to need regular Pat Kreitlow updates from Wisconsin. I promise. All right. Sounds good. Um, anything else before we before we finally wrap this up? Anything that we missed? Any topics that uh, we uh, we forgot to hit today? Uh, I think that we the the only other one is is dealing with I was I was teasing a, a reporter friend of mine on Up North News who's an Illinois native and. I mean, we could certainly talk about, you know, what bowl game the Illini is in, but I, I've been told I've been told it's too soon to bring up the fact that the Badgers are playing in a New Year's Bowl. So apart mm-hmm. from sports, no, we're, we're we're just ready to move on. I'm sorry, I don't have I don't have Packer cheesehead supporters on my radio program. I think that's a bridge too far. I don't um, I don't go there. I, I guess, I, I the guess I better take my, my I better wish you happy holidays and take my exit then. That's right. Thank you, Pat Kreitlau, Up North News. Thank you, Joe. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Alexa, play WCPT. WCPT from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. I am very pleased to be joined by my good friend, Bruce Rines, who's the former CBS News Deputy Bureau Chief in Los Angeles. It has been a while since we've talked, Bruce. Too bad nothing has happened to talk about. Oh, yeah, just things are very mellow out here in uh, the West Coast and throughout the country and throughout the world, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I would like to get a California perspective on Gavin Newsom. I mean, I don't know if you watched his, uh, I guess we're calling it a debate with Ron DeSantis, um, a a pretty useless program, (laughs) Uh, but, you know, it was entertaining. I mean, He's I love the fact that he's like, I'm 100 percent behind Joe Biden, but get to know me better. I mean, what do the people of California think about this? Are you really proud of him and hope that he runs for national office or or what? Well, I think it's, you know, it's wait and see. It's, you know, I think we can't make any people here aren't making any assumptions right now about uh, what could could or could not happen. I mean, you know, let's assume that. Joe Biden gets reelected and serves four years, and then it's, that's a long time, you know, between mm-hmm. then and then and now. Um, I think people, you know, this is California. People are are generally happy with um, with uh, Newsom, but you know, there are some uh, issues where people are getting a little, uh, you know, upset with him about him not taking particular positions on on various things and and uh, trying to be, you know, more. Position himself a little bit as all things to all people. Oh my God, he's turning into Nikki Haley. Well, yeah, (laughs) Uh, and you know, but I mean, overall, there's no danger of of him, you know, being recalled again or anything like that. It's just, uh, uh, you know, I think people are just in a wait and see period about what 
happens. I, mean, I don't think people necessarily mind him chasing around the country and uh, doing these things like this debate with, with uh, DeSantis. If you like Newsom, you you thought he won. If you like DeSantis, I guess you thought he won or something. So, you know, I, I don't know. Newsom is, uh, I mean, he, he, certainly he's, you know, one of the top five people that you have to look for in, in, in 2028, I would imagine. But, uh, you, know, I think as, you know, you know, a lot can happen between then and yeah. now. I don't know if you caught this. It didn't get widespread attention. I read it like deeply buried into something I was reading about something else where it said recently President Biden said that he would he was definitely running again if the opponent was going to be Donald Trump because he felt he was the best person to defeat Donald Trump, which sort of opened the door a little bit to the whole idea of if it's not Donald Trump, then things might be a little bit different. What do you think about that? I think, you know, one one of the problems with that is that it's getting a little late for if Trump, for whatever reason, conviction or or otherwise, uh, doesn't run uh, in the race. I think it's a, it's a little late to try to change horses and get a uh, a new Democrat other than Kamala, who's I guess more well known throughout the country, uh, to you know to to put them in, in their place. I mean, certainly in an emergency, you know, you'd, you'd have to see what what happens on that. But I don't know that if it's just the fact that uh, Trump doesn't run for whatever reason uh, that you know you can like that he would like immediately uh, announce his retirement or, or you know, that, that he's not uh, running for re-election. But I don't, don't you think that's, that's real... part of why Gavin is continuing, even though he says he's a thousand percent behind Joe Biden? That could be one I of the reasons that's... why he is continuing to try to create a real solid national profile. I think that the, that that he and other uh, uh, significant Democrats are certainly have that in the back of their mind that there has to be a plan B backup for whatever mm-hmm. reason, you know, but uh, uh, just one thing I guess I want, I just want to say about that, you know, I know that the whole thing about, you know, a person who's in its 80s, the presidency is like one of the most demanding job in the world, but people in their eighties are able to do things. And certainly somebody like Joe Biden, who is, you know, takes care of himself uh, is you know vibrant and is, is, as we are hearing behind the scenes and calls to the world leaders and things like that is doing a good job in trying to manage what is a very horrendous uh, uh, experience that's going on around the world. You know, I, it, it, it's you know he's he's eighty something years old. You don't you know I'm look I'm an, I'm an elderly man myself. I slur my words sometimes, and I'm not so good at reading stuff off the teleprompter, but. Uh, you know, he's doing a good job, and I don't see there's any reason to think that suddenly he's going to uh, to give up. And the whole thing about him doing gaps, you know, have you have you ever heard of Joe Biden? He's been doing that for 40 years, 50 <laughs> years. I want you to take off your um, journalist hat and put on your media hat, because right. I have one thing that I've been saying recently is that his people are not doing him any favors. You see him out Talking to the UAW, he's vigorous, he's present, he's alive. They put him in front of a podium at the White House, and you know that the lights are very bright, but there's there are ways to soften them. I think 
if you see him behind a podium at the White House, he can barely hold his eyes open. But if if there if that really was because, you know, his he was old and his eyes were just like that, they would be like that all the time. And they're not. You see him out walking around with people. You see him doing interviews just with normal sunlight. And he looks fine. I think that somebody has got to relight those official places where he does um, where he does his statements from. And also, I think somebody I know he's the president. And how do you tell the president that he needs help? But you can do it gently. I mean, you know, when I was a media trainer, I worked with a lot of very high profile people. And, you know, you're not going to walk into the room and say, you suck and I'm going to make you better. You, you say, you know, you've got a great base. We're going to build on that. You know, I mean, you do it in a way that is not threatening. So not only should they adjust the lighting, but who's ever writing his speeches, anybody who has a speech impediment, there will always be certain letter combinations or certain words that they have trouble with. When you write a speech for him, here's a thought. Don't use those words. Don't use those words that he has a tough time saying. You know, give the guy, give the guy a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. Tell him to stop saying things like, no joke. I'm not joking. You know, those are not those those key phrases that he relies on, those his crutch phrases. And everybody's got them. I've got them, too. Uh, those crutch phrases aren't doing for him what he thinks they're doing for him. Somebody's got to somebody's got to tell him that. And also, too, um, I was talking to somebody recently about how um, Ronald Reagan's people really managed him when he, you know, when his, when he got to the point where his oratory wasn't as sharp as it had been. And they would limit the amount of time. If he was going to talk about some economic issue, Reagan would say, there's a really important issue. We're going to do something about it. You know, we, we are going to take action here, you know, and to give us all the specifics, here's the head of the department that's dealing with this issue. He'd be on camera for like five minutes. When President Biden, it's like if he's got the camera, he sort of feels like, well, I'm here. I'm going to waste your time if I only talk for five minutes. So let me figure out 14 things to talk about so I can talk to you for 20 minutes and make it worth your while. That is not a plus. It just drives me insane. Okay, I'm going to stop now and ask you to comment. (laughs) No, I I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I I don't know if you've ever uh, met Biden or, or, or anything like that. He is the nicest guy in the world, and he wants He's a people pleaser, you know. That's kind of why he got into politics, I guess, in the first place. But he wants to to help you and and please you and and be friends with you and things like that. And I think that you're right. Works with detriment in a lot of uh, situations with reporters and and and, uh, and things like that. And uh, and also, I don't know. Is there maybe this is speculation, but maybe you know to counteract the perception of his. You know, being old and perhaps, uh, you know, in some people's minds, senility is there a perception that he should like talk about, you know, like whatever uh, uh, subject that a reporter brings up, no matter how obscure or off the topic of what he was going to talk about is, you know, I don't know. But um, but yes. And also, I agree with you about the podium thing. There's, the, the, that is such an old fashioned thing. There is there are. Certain situations, absolutely, where the president should be standing up behind a podium and delivering uh, some remarks or speech or something like that. But there are now other ways that you can 
position the president to talk and connect with his audience, even if it's an audience of journalists. There's there's other ways of doing it. Yep. And there's other ways of, of lighting him uh, yeah. rather than ways that make him feel like he like he can't see it all and has to has to squint. Um, it, it just um, it drives me crazy because I, I agree with you. Um, 80 schmady. I mean, there's, you know, Nancy Pelosi's older than he is. And, and she yeah. is she's awesome. She's she's amazing. It isn't just a chronicle, a chronicle age issue. It is um, it's there's so many things that that his people could do to enhance the way he comes across. And it seems almost like they're doing the opposite of what they should do. And they're and they're making him look old. They're making him look um, like he can't follow a train of thought. You know, it just, I don't know. It, clearly, this right. is I mean, an I, issue I have, Bruce. I, well, I have thought about this, too, to the point that the thing that, that that upsets me is that when he's in the Oval Office sitting in the chair opposite another world leader or somebody else, and they're sitting in the chairs in, in the uh, Oval Office and he's giving remarks, they're all written down in, in very small print on one card that he's holding in his lap that he can, I think he can barely see. There's other ways of getting those remarks in a, to him in a way that, that can be uh, sound more conversational when, when he reads them. He could have a, a larger clipboard in his in his lap with a uh, with larger print or something like that it's, it's the same thing we know he's reading something so why not have it so reading that he can like you know see and, and, it, may, and it sounds more uh conversational you're right i think that the uh the, the uh communications office of the white house is not doing him uh any favor certainly not as much as you're right the the uh, reagan uh white house or the obama white house um, Bruce Rines, former CBS Deputy Bureau Chief in Los Angeles. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. If you missed any of today's show, you can listen on SoundCloud or iTunes. Just search WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath, Saturdays at 1 p.m. We don't know what the Biden administration has done. You ask Americans about the economy, they're clueless. You ask them what they've done foreign policy, they're clueless. Why don't Americans know what the president is doing? And I'm thinking, has there ever been a presidency in American history where the guy who used to be in office gets more coverage than the guy who is in office? The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath, Saturdays at 1 p.m. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. who I originally met uh, here in Chicago. He was a producer at Channel 5 before he came, became a big network star. Uh, he retired as former, as a deputy bureau chief for CBS News in Los Angeles. And recently, uh, Bruce and his lovely wife, Dawn Westlake, took a wonderful vacation, which is great. You know, everybody, everybody should do it, especially retired people. But one of the things that struck me was, Bruce, you can't take the newsman out of the guy. Went to, they were in Finland, and he went to the Finnish-Russian border. 
I mean, Bruce, what were you thinking? I saw those pictures and I was like, oh, my God, you know, uh, are you trying to get captured? You want to be held hostage? You know, we were in the neighborhood, so why not? (laughs) There aren't any the border that we were at, but they they do like a, 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 a the Russians have a camera uh, set up there, and uh, so we uh, we we made some uh, gestures to the Russians while we were there, and it was uh, satisfying. But but you know, in all seriousness, they seem to be collecting Americans uh, to use as bargaining tri- chips. I mean, how many? What is it? Two hundred and fifty days now that the Wall Street Journal reporter um, Evan has been held. I can't. His, what's his last name? Gershevitz. Yeah, and that is you know that is outrageous, and, and I I can't believe it has gone this long. And I know I was just reading that the the Biden administration has made a number of gestures and overtures to Russia uh, through back channels about trades and things like that, and they're being obstinate, and and uh, it's 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 beyond the pale. And uh, I was also seeing that um, I know that Evan's parents are very frustrated and want this to be over. But they were uh, kind of criticizing. uh, They went on Fox News and were criticizing the Biden administration for not doing anything. And that's absolutely not true. The administration is doing something. They're trying. But you can't argue with Vladimir Putin right now. He's lost his mind. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I I can only imagine what it must be like to have a family member there and, um, you know, their, their frustration. I don't, what did you, when they were on Fox news, did you feel that the main reason was simply to raise the profile of their son's situation or did they really, were they really disgruntled with the administration and, um, wanted to publicize that? Well, I mean, I know I'm not going to, you know, I think that certainly they are going to be uh, eager to uh, appear on any new, any platform possible to keep awareness of their son in the uh, in in front of people's minds. But certainly I wouldn't be surprised if part of the uh, deal to, uh, you know, to be interviewed on uh, Fox News Live was the fact that, you know, can, what do you think about the Biden administration? You know, they're not doing enough, right? You know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't put it past the Fox News uh, people to uh, to subtly uh, influence the, uh, the the way that the uh, parents are thinking. One of the things that um, I've always thought was odd about this is, you know, maybe this was just um, something that presented itself that they felt they had to take advantage of. But they picked a reporter from the Wall Street Journal, which is part of the conglomerate owned by Rupert Murdoch, who by all accounts is fairly friendly with Vladimir Putin. You would think that Rupert would pick up the phone and be like, Vlad, dude, not my guy. You got to let my guy go. Um, Do you think that any Wall Street Journal executives are working on this? Do you think Rupert Murdoch has done anything about this? Or does it seem like he's just, you know, because he's passed it on to his son, uh, Lachlan, and, you know, he's just out of it, out of the business? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm certain that Wall Street Journal executives have this top of mind. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that they are working as hard as they can to uh, to try to get this thing over with. But, 
Um, as far as Rupert goes, you know, he's, he's now semi-retired, I guess, although he still has his uh, the thumb on the scale of, uh, with the board and everything. I, I, you know, I, I don't. He's got a lot. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Let's say if they that this was not something that uh, really uh, bothered him as much as other things that are going on with the uh, with the Fox Empire. Yeah, eight months. Um, the Wall Street Journal on their um, digital homepage. Um, one of the top banners is all about Evan Gershkovich. Eight months detained about his him, about his family, his reporting, how you can help. You can write a message. Um, it is um, at least at least they're not, you know, abandoning him. And thank God for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, did you, I, you ever, know, it's go ahead. when you were out in the field, I mean, you know, I've I've heard um, in, and read in memoirs of, of some reporters about uh, times when they were really in serious danger um in all of the times you were out in the field did you ever feel that that you were at risk uh, um you know uh not not to, <laughs> not to that extent and and you know and, you, and certainly not you know when i when we was in, um, you know, foreign countries, you know, the only time I was in, you know, so any type of hot zone or anything like that was when I was in the company of, you know, U.S. soldiers or something like that. Went into Iraq, but it was, you know, mm-hmm. escorted in by by the military and stuff like that. So, you know, there's an element of danger, but I never thought that, the, you know, I was in, in serious trouble. And then, <laughs> as you know, um, my wife, Dawn, when we were working in Chicago, a lot of times, you know, you know, there, there'd be some sort of shooting or something at night, uh, there's some sort of uh, incident that's bad. And, and uh, Dawn would always say, you know, was always worried that when I had to go out there and, and do something like that. And I said, I'm in the safest place in the world. I got every, half the cops in Chicago are around us right now. There's no problem there. So, you know, I, I never felt, uh, I never felt real danger, you know, on stuff that I was doing, even overseas, there is, you know. Well, I think it's interesting that the one story you've told me about a close call happened not because of you or your work, but Dawn, his wife, Dawn Westlake, is a filmmaker. And one of her films was accepted into a film festival, and I believe it was in Russia, was it not? She's had the films accepted in Russia, yep. And you guys were there, and uh, as, as I recall the story, um, the film was going to be shown among with others a certain night, oh, and you no, guys no, just I decided to about. skip not, it. Not Russia, China. Oh, we China. Were in China at that time. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, that's right, China. And uh, we were there for the uh, for the festival. And Dawn, for some reason, thought uh, maybe we shouldn't go to the screening. We'll just go out to dinner instead. And I said, okay, whatever you want to do. And then it turned out, we found out later that the uh, the screening was uh, raided by uh, the uh, Chinese, uh, um, you know, the, the I forget what they call their, their their police force, but it was raided and people were detained and things like that. And uh, I think it was uh, largely due to, um, you know, pro-Western themes that were in the, the uh, film festival. So, uh, 
we uh, we lucked out. We did not go and uh, had to go through that. But uh, yeah, that, that shows you. That, yeah, so you all the years you were you reported from war zones, and the one time you came close to being arrested by a foreign government was because of a film that Don made. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> that Don we Westlake, she's getting you into life. trouble all the time. Yeah, well, you know, I'll stick with her, I guess, though. <laughs> I guess so. Um, how is the race um, for Senate shaping up? We have Barbara Lee. We uh, have Adam Schiff. Katie Porter uh, wants to uh, take over the seat that Diane Feinstein is uh, vacating. How is that shaping up? I haven't read anything about that for a while. You know, the one thing that you, if you, you know, talk to uh, the Democrats in, in California, the one kind of regret they have is that um, we're going to lose three very good Congress people from the House of Representatives. Uh, you know, we'll get one good senator, no matter which one of them it is. But uh, but losing three very effective uh, Congress people, you know, we hope that their replacements will be half as half as good. And in Katie Porter's case, you know, she uh, represents a red district, so uh, there's a you know there's concern that that is going to uh, to flip in uh, in 2024, no matter you know what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, Schiff's is I know uh, Schiff has has raised the most money. Um, I don't think it's on a lot of people's radar right now. It, it will be, you know, soon our, our primaries in March. And in California, the top two uh, uh, finishers go on to the uh, general election, no matter what party they are. So it's going to be two Democrats against each other in uh, in November of 2024. And we'll see which one. Uh, but, you know, all, all three of them are very good um very good people. Yeah, Steve Garvey, the former uh, Dodger baseball player, mm-hmm. is running as a Republican, but that's a joke out here. He's not going to. Oh, really? Because, you know, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. lots of times, I mean, you've got the um, the celebrity factor, which I think was a large part of how Tommy Tuberville won his Senate seat. Oh, yeah. you look, I know that guy. Yeah, I like that guy. He was a great football coach. Let's send him to the Senate and see how that worked out. Because um, sometimes when yeah. somebody is just really famous, I mean, um, Herschel Walker gave Raphael Warnock a run for his money that um, shouldn't that I mean that should have been he should have been buried. That that should have been a landslide for for God's sakes, because, you know, um, but I think the Republicans in a in a very sort of cynical way were like, yeah, he's famous. People won't pay attention. He's famous and he's black. How could we go wrong? Um, I want to talk to Bruce more about this. Uh, Bruce, I see we've got to take a break. I'm talking to former uh, CBS News L.A. Deputy Bureau Chief Bruce Rines. We'll be back with more after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. My friend Bruce Rines retired a while ago from um, being in the CBS News Bureau in Los Angeles. And uh, he and I were just talking about the Democratic Congress people who have said that they are going to be going after Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat. 
And you mentioned the former baseball player, Steve Garvey, has announced that he is going to run for that seat as a Republican. But, you know, Bruce, it's just possible there could be another high profile Republican in that race. Uh, You know, Kevin McCarthy is going to be out of work very, very soon. And I don't know if you read his um, his cloying op-ed in the Wall Street Journal or listened to his saccharine video, but he still (laughs) is so dedicated to the people. And, you know, wouldn't that be perfect? Wouldn't that be the final rebuttal of to Matt Gates? All right, you you showed me the exit, but I'm coming back as a senator. Yeah, Uh, I I I am sure that there are uh, some people in his uh, Sacramento suburban district that may have respect for him, but I don't think that he engenders a lot of respect regard throughout uh, most of uh, most of California. He runs, you know, good luck to him. You know, it's his donor's money. But um, obviously he has his supporters. I mean, how many, 10 terms, I believe, he served in Congress. So, I mean, the people from his district must have thought he was A-OK. By all accounts, if he really wants to charm you, he can turn it on. I've, I've never met the man myself. But, um, you know, I guess in, in short bursts, he can be pretty pleasant. Well, I guess so. You know, but uh, the small district up in uh, up in Northern California is different from the uh, vast expanse of Southern California, Southern Coastal California that he, he would have to charm. And Northern Coastal California, uh, too. I don't think that uh, uh, I think Nancy Pelosi would be happy to. Uh, and if she's running, going to run for re-election or whatever she ends up doing is is going to uh, make remind people about uh, what uh, Kevin McCarthy was like up there. Yeah, well, I think it was odd. I mean, Patrick McHenry, of course, also announced that he was not going to seek another term, but he's filling out. He's staying till the end of his current term. Kevin McCarthy, if I understood the reporting correctly, is basically saying, you know what? I'm going home for the holidays and I'm not coming back, which puts an already thin margin that the Republicans have um, at greater risk. I'm kind of surprised by that. Yeah, um, I would. The other thing, though, is that. I'm not exactly sure, but I think like the uh, deadline to uh, to file for the primary is like might even be today or sometime this month. So I don't know that uh, Kevin McCarthy's got a lot of time to to try to get on onto the ballot if if that's his job. I would be more uh, I I, I would be less surprised that he's going after like some sort of uh, lobbying job or something else. That's uh, some lucrative thing that he can cash in on. Well, um, maybe um, I've just been reading your local paper, uh, the L.A. Times, and maybe you'll run into him at the Terranea Resort. Have you heard of this resort in Palos Verdes? Oh, yes, I've stayed there. It's nice. Yeah, well, apparently um, in two and a half years, uh, Kevin McCarthy's election committees have spent a quarter of a million dollars there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's it. laughs> 
Yeah. How did they, how did the LA Times put it? His thinly regulated leadership pack. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not saying that it was an illegal way of spending the money because it is a thinly regulated leadership pack. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, yeah. By the way, uh, for, for those of you uh, who don't get the L.A. Times, uh, they have an aerial photo of, is that how you say it, Terranea? Terranea, yeah. Yeah. And I'm a, just, it is breathtaking, okay? It is just, I, you know, I'm looking at these pictures and I'm thinking to myself, I must go here. It is beautiful. It's on the ocean and it's, and it's glorious. When did you stay there? Yes, I I, I highly recommend it, but uh, you know, uh, it's uh, Palos Verdes is also a, a kind of a, a red district, so you know you got to uh, there'll be a mix of people there. Hmm. You know, it's funny because we like people think of Illinois as a blue state when we have some very conservative areas, as you well know, and California really is the same. That there are pockets of um, of that pockets that are pretty red. Yes, well, you know, all of Orange County is uh, is is pretty red. Although some parts of it are changing, but like I was saying, Katie Porter is an is an anomaly. You know, down there, a mm-hmm. very progressive uh, liberal who represents a, a still uh, predominantly red uh, district. Although it's it's kind of mixing. It's maybe getting a little bit uh, purple, but it's it's, uh, it's I would say it's still red. Hey, I was just uh, looking up on the uh, just uh, checking the California dates for. Uh, filing and today is the last day for a uh, declaration of candidacy for a state for an office so uh state office so uh, so um, uh, so you only have a few hours to get your petitions in no just um kevin mccarthy i think is going to go for the money and not for the uh not for the glory headache of the uh, headache of going uh, back to campaigning you know, I, I can't help switching back to a media conversation because I don't often have guests on with your kind of experience. I want to know what you think about TikTok. Is it harmless or is it uh, Chinese spyware? You know, I, I don't I, I'm not on TikTok. I'm you know, I'm. Come on. <laughs> I've been I, on know, it, I can, and then I deleted it, and then I went back on yeah. it, and I deleted it, and then I went back on it because I heard about Book Talk, where you can get book recommendations, and that's all I've done with it so far. But, you know, I was talking to the young woman who did John Fetterman's social media when he was running against Dr. Oz for the Senate seat in Pennsylvania, and yeah. uh, she was his what did they call her, his TikTok guru or something. And I said to her, I said, are you worried about it? And she looked at me and she goes, you have a computer, uh, you have an iPhone. Do you really think that your data is private? You know, I mean, like you're because I said, you know, oh, you know, are they going to get my data? She goes, there's a million ways they can get your data. She said, why are you so worried about TikTok? And so young people don't seem to have this same concern that I keep reading about everywhere else. And I just I don't know what to make of it. My larger concern about TikTok, more than what China may be siphoning off from it, my larger concern is the algorithm that takes you deeper and deeper into something, into a place where it's not necessarily healthy for you to go. If you, you know, start to, if you searched or, or presented with something that, 
kind of trying to maybe smacks a little of a of a conspiracy uh, a conspiracy theory, and it's something that is you know you watched it or something like that just uh, because it's just you know whatever it was about it, and then that takes you further and further. That's what I'm concerned about, not only in TikTok but in in Meta and in Instagram and and uh, and and any one number of these things. It's like where does looking at something eventually take you to the exclusion of, of, of other things. And then, and, you know, TikTok for a lot of people is just the, you know, very innocuous, you know, dance videos or something like that. But more and more it's being used by, uh, by factors, good and bad to try to influence people's uh, thinking. And I understand how addictive that TikTok in particular is. Uh, And that's just what I'm worried about more than, you know, there's data science. I'm, I'm not putting anything past the Chinese, but uh, mm-hmm. I, the the algorithm is is what uh, I think is is more concerning. I was reading one. You know, they're starting to do these articles about you know end of the year wrap up and looking forward and predicting the future. And this one uh, expert said that they predicted that not necessarily just in 2024, but going forward, that social media was going to get more and more and more and more toxic. And there would be a crisis point where basically people just turn their back on it. I thought that maybe was a little bit of wishful thinking. Do you, could you envision a future like that? Oh, I'm not going on Facebook anymore. It's just terrible. No, because I think people are with, you know, to one degree or another, you know, some people are, you know, really addicted to it, but, but, but most people, I think, who have an account, a Facebook account or something like that, still occasionally look at it, even if they think that they, you know, they, they say, oh, I'm not on social media anymore. People are on social media no matter <laughs> if they like it or not. So I, I think that uh, I think people are are going to continue to uh, have social media play some part in their lives. And what's concerning about that is, you know, the deep fakes and, and, and AI and the algorithms and where those things are manipulated to take you. Do you use social media for anything? I, I have a, I have a Facebook account. I have an Instagram account. And because I have an Instagram account, I have a threads account mm-hmm. and I look at, I look at threads and uh, you know, I look at Instagram and, and Facebook. I, I don't post or comment, certainly not as much as I used to, but you know, yeah, yes, I still do because I've had it for many years and it's, and, and those things are a habit and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not whether I'm sorry or proud to say those things are a habit. Well, I have a public Facebook account that I don't think I've even logged into in two, two or three years. I have a private Facebook account that I use to keep track of my family in Ohio who's having a birthday and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, Instagram is almost entirely dogs. I think that's what Instagram really does best. And I can share with you. That's the algorithm for you. Oh, my God. I follow so many different dogs and dog accounts. And, you know, I mean, at the end of a day, when you're especially when you're talking politics and looking at, you know, the possibility of another Donald Trump presidency at night, you need dogs, Bruce. You need dogs. Lady B, did we lose Bruce? 
Okay, let's take we need to take a break anyway, Lady B. So let's take a break and reconnect with Bruce. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Jonas Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Joined by Bruce Rines, who is the former CBS News Deputy Bureau Chief out in Los Angeles. Bruce, I'm reading more and more uh, that the mainstream media has finally embraced the idea that, hey, you know, Donald Trump really could get elected to the presidency again. Gosh, darn it. And we don't think he would be very good at it. Um, first of all, I think that the fact that, you know, organizations like The New York Times seem to be suddenly waking up to this possibility is um, coming very late to the game. But I guess late is better than never. What do you think about the odds, the likelihood of Donald Trump becoming the next president of the United States? You know, I, I, I would like to say very, very non-existent, but, you know, you can't say that. And a lot of it has to do, unfortunately, with a lot of things outside of the Biden administration's control, like certain aspects, not every aspect, but certain aspects of the economy. And what upsets me more than anything else is people are comparing prices and the economic conditions of now to what it was before the pandemic, kind of like erasing, not regarding what the pandemic did to shook up the world economy and that we have to settle back down uh, from that. And yes, prices are much higher today. They were in 2019, but you know, it's, it's, it's a, that's a, something that is going to to settle out and and by things that not necessarily the Biden administration can control. And a lot of people, you know, weren't alive or, or don't remember how high inflation was back in the late 1970s here and into the beginning of uh, the Reagan administration's, uh, the Reagan administration. And it eventually settled down a little bit due to Reagan's policies, but not entirely. And so, but the people, you know, unfortunately, they tend to blame the president of the United States for whatever economic conditions are at the, are at the time. And um, I think we, uh, I think the, the economy in the United States is skating past a recession this year. And I don't know whether it'll, what the condition will be in uh, late, you know, fall of 2024. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, unfortunately, I think that's the thing that a lot of people focus on, and uh, to the exclusion of the uh, sheer criminality that the Trump administration uh, uh, participated in. What do you think about no labels? Well, I think that's a joke. I, I, I think that's going to fizzle out. I don't think anybody's going to pay attention really? to that. Because they're Manchin, trying Manchin, to get on the ballot. Okay, I'll, I'll just say this very plain, clear, clearly and plainly. Joe Manson's a joke, and uh, with if anybody, if they start to under, unravel Joe Manson's uh, uh, financial situation and his daughter's financial uh, uh, positions and things like that, you know, they're going to like uh, sour on him very soon if they think that he's like some sort of great uh, compromise candidate. I talked to a friend in Chicago who knows that I'm a progressive or at least a liberal and um, was telling me 
that they were a big supporter of no labels. And when I say a big supporter, I mean somebody that's writing checks, kind of a, a supporter. And I was told that their polling, their polling shows that the hungry, that the, the nation is hungry for an, a third option and that, that they, that the, a third party candidate could finally win in this country. And I just wanted to look at them and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I once had a friend who ran for Congress because of the private polling they did showed them that the current incumbent was incredibly weak and basically anybody could defeat them. And uh, then when they filed their challenge, the incumbent kind of woke up and started uh, talking and, and doing things. Long story short, my friend who ran for Congress uh, didn't succeed. And... <laughs> You know, but the polling, the polling, Bruce, was solid. And I just I felt after all after we've seen how wrong polling has been in on, on the big stage for so long. How can you put your eggs in this basket, especially when you could be opening the door to Donald Trump? Yeah. I keep looking for some sort of real explainer about how modern um, political polling is done, given that, you know, most people thinking people don't answer, don't have an, a landline, don't mm-hmm. answer unknown, uh, unknown uh, numbers on their cell phones. I, I, you know, I just think that it's only open to extremists one way or the other, or people who, who, you know, don't, aren't, aren't thinking uh, Americans. I don't know. I know that they use a combination of telephone and sometimes there's a, a direct like email uh, contacts or things like that but i would like to see exactly what modern polling is like compared to like what it was before i think polling was was pretty accurate you know up until about five years ago or maybe 10 years ago but i i just don't think the accuracy level is there now i i really don't either and then i think the water has also been muddied because you have partisan organizations, you and I know that a lot of times you can evoke a specific answer if you word your question a certain way. And you've got these partisan organizations that do these polls and then they release the results like somehow the results were conducted or the questioning was conducted in a neutral fashion. And I think that that people, you know, they don't know about polling enough to know you know, which one is reliable and which one isn't. And I think the I think it's worthless. I think that as a tool in news or in elections, polling has become all but worthless. Yeah, it, it, it's very lazy too to, to just to, you know, make a political uh, story based on some poll, to commission a poll and make a story about it. It's just, it's just it's almost the same thing, which I still see today is that, you know, people going to diners in, in Iowa to do man on the street thing. I mean, you know, I, I, I guess more, maybe more people go to diners in Iowa than they do across <laughs> most of the country. But, you know, I just don't think that that's that the, the people in the diner are very representative of uh, people throughout America or even people in that state. Yeah, I I agree with you a hundred percent on that. Um, so, are you looking forward to the Iowa caucuses and how they're going to be covered? Speaking of diners, 
Yeah, no, <laughs> because and also you know, and and another thing, also there's another thing I think is useful. If we're going to uh, continue on this rant. I think caucuses are uh, irrelevant and anachronistic in this day and age. I, you know, this, this this whole idea of like coming together in a high school gym and then you stand over here and you stand over here and if your guy's losing, come over and stand over to my thing. You know, you know what is that? That's that's 1890s America. That's not the mm-hmm. 20 you know 2020s America. Yeah, I think um, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a joke. One of the things that I said to my friend, the one who was thinking about supporting no labels is that and I I believe this firmly for a long time, I thought um, Republicans in elected office could reclaim their party. They could turn their backs on the racism and the and the misogyny and the homophobia and they could stand tall and reclaim the Republican Party. I no longer believe that, um, not just because of what happened to Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, but because what I see in people like Lindsey Graham. Oh, let's, which way is the wind blowing today? That's the position that yeah. I'm taking. Yeah. And um, so I think it's up to the donor class to retake the Republican Party. And maybe it was a a step in that direction when the Koch network recently came out and said that they were going to get behind Nikki Haley. I don't think they are doing that because they necessarily think Nikki Haley has a chance of winning. But maybe they can signal to Republicans, you know, we're not going to pay for crazy anymore. What do you think? I wish that that was true. And I think you're right. It will signal big money donors Unfortunately, you know, a lot of MAGA is small money donors, and then they they pour it into uh, into Trump's accounts. You know, no matter no matter what. I don't know that it's his main uh, you know source of funding, but he gets a, a pretty significant chunk from it, and uh, they're not going to pay that. I doubt that they even know who Coke is. Mm. Do you think that if Donald Trump gets convicted in any of these jurisdictions of anything, it's going to matter to his chances to reclaim to claim the Republican nomination? Uh, I don't know about the nomination. Uh, the, the, I think in the general, I think it does. I think uh, I think there are some. Lady B, did we lose Bruce? convinced and resigned that he's going to be the uh oh, the no, there he is. he's back nominee. bruce we lost you in the middle of that sentence could you say what you just said again oh sorry i said <laughs> sorry <laughs> about that that uh he uh uh what was i saying it was so good oh he was saying, <laughs> i was saying that i don't <laughs> i think that um i don't think it's going to matter to uh into as far as his nomination is concerned i think it would matter in a general because i think purple states i think it might matter one way or the other to some respect but i'm uh convinced and resigned to the fact that I think he's going to be the uh, the Republican nominee. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing that could keep him from the Republican nomination is a serious medical event. I don't think that there's anything that could happen to him politically or legally uh, that would that would stop him. Thoughts on that? It's alarming. It's alarming that there's such a large percentage of Americans who are fine with criminality and venality and uh, and and authoritarianism it, it's it's astonishing to me that anybody who had a, a, a general high school education let alone college in this country would want something like that yeah 
It really is. It's it's jaw dropping. Uh, Bruce, thank you for joining me. Uh, always interesting you, to get your perspective. Our California correspondent, Bruce Rines. That's what I'm <laughs> going to say, right? And that's how I'm going to introduce you uh, going forward. Right. So so uh, reach good. out to me when there are more California happenings that we need to talk about, okay? Thank you. I will, and I'll update my resume to put that title on. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bruce Rines, WCPT California correspondent. Uh, thank you for being here. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. It'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks radio program, Mega Worldwide. Hey, Google, play WCPT. Streaming Chicago's progressive talk from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. We are having one of our wonderful sponsored Union Strong segments. Uh, returning to us is Tom Siren, who is a subsidized organizer with Smart Local 265. Hello, Tom. How are you today? Hi, Joan. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, I've always wanted to ask you, subsidized organizer, what are your, what are your job responsibilities? Um, well... We have uh, three organizers here at uh, Local 265, and our, our job responsibilities are to basically uh, we, we canvas our, the areas we cover looking for, um, you know, co- uh, new construction, you know, construction jobs throughout the area. Um, we do some research prior to that even to try to stay on top of who's doing what in the area. And then we find out who's doing the jobs, and then when we find out it's a non-union um, a company or contractor doing the work, we actually go there. We try to uh, introduce ourselves to the workers, try to talk to them, try to build a relationship, and um, you know, just try to get our, you know, get our point across about what the union can offer them. And you know, sometimes it's a easier sell than others, but uh, that's a big part of what we do. Uh, is making relationships with um, guys that are doing the work, the same work that we do, but yet they're not getting paid um, the wages they should be getting paid. Do you sometimes have those conversations with the contractors? Uh, Yes, we do. Uh, That's ultimately our goal is to try to encourage the contractor to uh, become signatory with, with us and you know my my part of my job is to is to build a relationship with them also to try to show them you know the um the things that the union offers sometimes they're only looking at dollars and cents but they're not looking at the big picture of the of the skilled workforce access you know they gain access access to a highly trained workforce um you know with members that have years and years of experience. Um, and then they have access to our apprenticeship program. And there's a, you know, the benefit of that is to, they can, they can bring in young people into the apprenticeship program and, and kind of bring them up the way they want. And they're still getting the, you know, top of the line training that we offer. And 
it really it's good for company growth, you know, for the future and everything else. Um, you know, our our um, you know, I our, I want smart re- rebate program. That's a big thing where the um, we offer. Uh, I want smart is a is a is a rebate program through the contractors and the union that offer rebates to homeowners for using uh, union contractors to do the work on their homes for furnace and air and heat pump replacements. Um, and then we also have a random drug testing policy. So, you know, we have a, it's a strict policy that ensures it ensures a drug-free workplace. So the you you pitch the contractor on this, so they basically get a drug-free workforce without having to um, do the actual testing and enforcement themselves. Correct, correct. We we do it. We do it. Uh, we have a third party that actually takes care of it for us, uh, and um, it's a random draw. And you get you know when you get called, you have a certain amount of time to get to the lab to get tested. And then it comes back and, and everything's, you know, we just move on. So um, it's a good it's a good option for the employees. It's something they don't have to worry about, especially when they're, they've got so many other things on their plate. They're able to, you know, take that one off their plate. I know that if people are union workers, the union has a health care plan. The union has a retirement plan. So if a contractor wanted to become a union shop, they would would they no longer have to worry about a retirement plan for their workers correct they also we you know the um our retirement plan our health care plan takes away the burden on that's on the contractor to provide that for their field employees or their workforce in the field uh the union handles all that uh the contractors pay one flat rate towards our benefits and then once that payment comes in, we actually disperse it to all the different funds. And, it, you know, it's a, it works out well because, like I said, it alleviates all the headaches that come with them shopping for health care plans, dealing with, um, you know, different financial institutions to try to get a retirement plan going of some sort of 401K. And then, you know, so they don't have to do any of that. It's strictly uh, you pay the fat, flat fee and you – um, we do all the disbursement. We handle all the uh, all the funding to all the different benefits. What are um, when you approach a contractor? What are their concerns? Well, uh, a concern is always money. They think that you know it's it's too much money. It's hard for them to to justify it. But then in the big picture. Um, it actually, you know, it really isn't much difference from what they're doing by the time um, they get the, you know, well-trained, efficient worker. The work's getting done quicker, and we, like I said, we alleviate a lot of the headaches with with some of the, with the pensions and the retirements and the and the healthcare. So once we're, you know, once we have that conversation, then we move on to, you know, like, you know, what's a what's a good reason why you, why you, why you want to become union. And part of it is, is having this access to this workforce. that's ready to go. They don't mm-hmm. have to train them. Uh, they come ready to go. They're safety trained. They're, uh, trained in their skill and they're, they're ready to rock and roll. So, um, that's a big plus for contractors because, you know, construction work goes up and down. And sometimes you need, 
you know, 20 guys in the field, sometimes you only need 10, you know, and, and that's part of the, the union labor is we can provide the labor for when things are really good, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, when you, when they're not so good, then you can send them back to the hall and we can try to send guys back out to, you know, other locations. Is how, how would you say, uh, first of all, how do you, how many non-union shops say in the last year have you visited, had these conversations with? Uh, we probably, you know, you probably do about, yeah, I'd say probably a good conversation once a month, mm. you know, because it's, a uh, you know, it's not very, uh, you know, it's something they don't want to come to you for, so you're going <laughs> to kind of have to go to them, you know. But uh, I did have a conversation with a, a very large company recently that um, they're having a problem with retaining and uh, recruiting employees, and he knows the reason why because he's getting, he's having, he, he'll have empo- an employee that's working for him for seven years, and then the employee will leave to go join a union uh, because, um just the better benefits, and he can't offer that. He he can offer the pay. The pay was kind of close, but the benefits they can't mm-hmm. match. Uh, so he's he's realizing that for in order for him to grow where he wants to be, he has to get uh, access to better skilled labor, and he knows that the union is the best way to you know to go about that. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Tom Siren, a subsidized organizer with Smart Local 265 in our regularly sponsored Union Strong segment. Uh, Tom, when we come back, one of the areas that unions seem to be really moving into is providing all different kinds of health care for their workers. I want to talk to you about that when we come right back after this break. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. The Devil's Advocate. Former President Donald Trump made sexual comments about his daughter Ivanka that were so lewd, he was rebuked by his chief of staff. Former Trump official Miles Taylor writes in a new book. Damn, Don, that's your daughter, man. You can't talk like that. What's wrong with you? Did I say that aloud? I was just thinking it in my head, and it must come out. So creeper. The Devil's Advocates, weeknights at 7 on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our sponsored Union Strong segment, and I'm joined by Tom Siren, subsidized organizer with Smart Local 265. And one thing I have gleaned from the many conversations I've had with union leaders over the last several months is that more and more unions, aside from just offering like some sort of health insurance, unions are really working to provide services and support when it comes to all different aspects of health care for their members. Tom, talk about that, if you would. Uh, definitely, yeah. So our, our insurance in general, our health insurance is, is, is just great. I mean, I've raised four kids, you know, and my, I'm married for 29 years. We never had an issue with health, insur- health insurance. The health care has been great. Uh, but in the last few years, we've... Uh, We've moved to this, uh, in addition to our regular health care, we also have these um, 
facilities called the Union Wellness Center and Union Eyes. Uh, these these facilities were established through collaborative effort of seven local trade unions, uh, basically aiming to enhance the well-being and health care of our members and their families. Um, it's just it's one of the greatest things that we've been involved with. I've been using it for two years now, and it's just it's it's just a great great system and. Uh, it's a very personalized care. When you go to the doctor, you basically um, you sit down with the doctor, you have a nice conversation, you know, probably a good 20 minutes or so, maybe 25 minutes of conversation, talking about whatever you want to talk about, and then you go into your exam. So you spend a good amount of time with the doctor. It's not like your typical doctor's visit where the doctor is <laughs> basically the nurse sets you all up and then the doctor comes in for five minutes and then he's gone. Uh, this is a really good, um, you know, it's like white glove treatment almost, you know, and, um, the best thing about it, 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 it's zero copaid, copays, zero deductible, um, and minimal waiting times. And, you know, just a great range of services that they offer. Um, you know, they're pri- you can use them as primary care, motion health, get your lab draws there. Uh, your annual wellness exams, immunizations, uh, physical therapy. You can actually go there for physical therapy. If you have an old, uh, ailment in your elbow or your shoulder or your knee, uh, they'll take you an unlimited amount of physical therapy. Um, sick care, just you're generally feeling under the weather, you go there, they'll take care of you. Uh, wellness education, you want to drop some pounds, you want to you know, get in better shape, they'll help you with that too. Um, they carry uh, uh, quite a bit of the common prescription drugs that are, you know, that they go through most of the time or the most common ones, and they keep them on site. So you, sometimes you just get your prescription filled right there. And then a whole separate thing, but it's attached, is is unionized, the vision care. And another great, great uh, thing that we've got involved with, um, it's basically free, free yearly eye exams. Uh, with state-of-the-art equipment, uh, American-made uh, glasses, you can get a, you get one free pair of glasses every year, or a year supply of contacts um, for all members and the dependents. So, you know, I started wearing glasses about uh, ten years ago, and uh, it's just been great. You know, if you they give you a warranty, if you scratch lenses, they'll take them back and they'll replace the lenses for free. Um, it's just outstanding. So I can't say enough about it. Um, it's just been great. My whole family uses it, and it really helps with our. What you know ultimately helps us control the cost of rising healthcare with our healthcare funds. Um, we can, they can control it because us and the. I think it's we're at eight unions total now. So us and the several other unions can control what they're paying for healthcare instead of going to like you know, a hospital or a doctor that's through a big group that's, you know, you have to fight with to get the prices down and everything else. But uh, so we still have great health care besides this, but this is just in addition to the great health care we have. One of the things um, that I'm curious about, you know, we think of people who work in the trades as being really hardy and and tough. What about mental health support and mental health care? 
So, yeah, we've been getting uh, a, a lot more um, educated on this, you know, on this, uh, on mental health because it's a, it's a big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, a lot of people don't know that uh, suicide in, in construction is three and a half times higher than the national average, which is, you know, kind of alarming when you think of it. And uh, we just wanted our members to know you know, that we're there for them. We're there to talk to them. We're there to um, help if needed. You know, we have programs set up. We have um, hotlines they can call, crisis hotlines. Um, we're, we're, as a as a officers of the union, we're getting more educated on the, on the problems and, and what's out there. So uh, we, you know, it's, it's definitely becoming a, a well, you know, it's a well-known issue. So we're trying to stay on top of it for our members. And if our members are in need, we want them to know how to get a hold of who they need to talk to, to solve their, mm-hmm. their issues. I um, I recently heard that surprising statistic about suicide. Uh, is anybody looking into, I mean, are there any um, general thoughts on what is leading to this? You know, there, there, we had, we belong to a, um, so obviously we're sheet metal workers, sheet metal, air, rail, and transportation union. We have, a um, an organization within our organization called, um, uh, and Smoet actually is the one that's kind of educating us and, they're they're trying to you know they're trying to come up with the information we need to you know to know these things i don't know that what driving it i could, i've been on i've been in the field i know the stresses that come with it i know it's just like any other job mm-hmm. um a lot of stress builds up you got timelines you got deadlines and it's just a matter of uh some people could take it better than others fortunately i was able to take it pretty good i didn't stress myself out too bad but I've worked with a lot of people that couldn't take it, and they they would get completely stressed. And so um, I think stress probably has a lot to do with it. And, you know, we just want them to know that, you know, anything that's going on in your world, we can, we can get you the help you need to talk to somebody. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what you would hope would be the kind of help you would hope and would be available, that kind of help and support. Also, um, going back to what you said earlier, I thought it was interesting that you said in your vision care program that not only can you get eyeglasses, but the union um, program makes sure that they're made in America glasses, you know, and that's how it should be. You know, people, especially yes. people who want to support American workers, should look into that. Is something made in America and, and why not? Right. If you, you know, if you have lots of choices, why not choose that? Yeah, it's a great thing, and you know, I, I, a lot of them are made locally in Chicago, which is even better. Really? Yeah. I didn't realize so that we were uh, making eyeglasses in the Chicago area. Yeah, so, someone's making them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, there it, it's definitely a double whammy. We, I mean, we're getting. Um, we're obviously helping our own local economy out just by doing that. And it's, um, yeah, I got a pair on my head right now and I couldn't be happier with them, you know, and it's, I go on once a year and then 
in addition to the me- the members actually in the work- working in the field, they get a, they can get their normal daily glasses, and then we get an additional. They actually just the member gets additional safety glasses, prescription safety glasses, which is a real oh, nice yeah. thing. Once you start wearing glasses, uh, prescription safety glasses are are nice to have, um, and you get them once a year also. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's another great thing, and. You know, they do a really, really good eye exam. It's not your typical eye exam equipment. It's 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 very high quality, high tech equipment that that really does a um, a good exam of your eye of what's going on. So you know, there might be underlying health conditions that you can see in your eye that they can recognize. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's definitely just a really good program. Very fortunate to be involved with it, and very thankful 265 got involved with it for myself and my family. I've heard that you describe what you do for a living as spreading the union gospel. Uh, <laughs> it seems like a job that um, would be more important now than ever, when, especially when we have a president who's, who's so pro-union and really wants... Oh, yeah. Uh, union workers to be, you know, fulfilling a lot of these federal contracts. Is it easier to spread the gospel these days, Tom? <laughs> it, it, you would think it would be super easy when I'm offering you these kind of benefits and these, um, this, uh, a good pay, you know, good pay rate and great benefits. But people are still hesitant. I mean, we're still, we get a, we get a lot of people that aren't. Um, most of them know like union or, Hey, my dad was a union plumber or, Hey, my dad, you know, my uncle's mm-hmm. a union electrician. So they understand what it brings to the table, but there's a lot of people that aren't aware of it and they're not aware of anything. They're not aware of the benefits. They just think we're there to take their money. And, and ultimately that's the furthest from the truth. Um, we are there to represent them and to, um, negotiate great pay and great benefits um, through our contracts. And a lot of these people just aren't aware of, you know, what we're offering. And then, you know, once I explain it to them, they're, so sometimes they're like, oh, yeah, it sounds good. Or sometimes they're like, well, you know, my boss takes care of me. Well, okay, that's great. But, you know, if something happens to your boss, now you're going to have to go and renegotiate at the next company down the road. With us, you don't have to renegotiate. You go down, you go to the next company, you're getting the same the same package that you're getting here. So it's kind of nice for the employee. They don't have to worry about health care changing or retirement yeah. plans changing. It's, it's, it's all set in stone. And we just, you know, so you can work at a, at a different contractor, you know, here and there, and it doesn't matter. It's all going to the same place, well, which know, is really nice for the member. Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter isn't uh, in the, in the trades, but she's currently uh, switching jobs and the paperwork and trying to figure out the health care, it's, um, you know, I was very lucky, you know, like, like you're offering my health care uh, came through my union. So whether I worked for Channel 7 or Channel 5 or Channel 9, you know, it was I knew what the program was. I knew how it worked. I right. knew what my benefits were. And there's a lot to recommend that. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very uh it's user friendly for you and your family because mm-hmm. you, you just it, you just roll with the same thing. Of course, we have changes, you know, every so often with our health care. But for the most part, it's business as usual. And you just 
you know, you keep on getting this great service. And it's been, like I said, I've been fortunate. Uh, real one quick story. My daughter just turned 26, and um, so she's officially off our health care. So her employer provided her with health care, and it, what a shock she, she got from the the deductibles and the co-pays <laughs> and it's a because she never world. really had any of that stuff. Yeah. Now her jaw's dropping going, what, I have to pay this or pay that? You know, and it just goes to show you, like, what, um, you, you know, how, how good she had it for all these years. She didn't really notice it because she was a kid, but now she's a young adult. Now she's getting a reality check of mm-hmm. real life. And, um, you know, I... I'm hoping that uh, <laughs> she's uh, dating a tradesman right now. So hopefully she, uh, in the future, she has good union insurance, but we'll see. <laughs> Once again, <Yeah>. Tom Siren, <laughs> subsidized organizer with Smart Local 265, somebody who spreads the union gospel. Thank you for being here on our Union Strong segment today, Tom. Thank you very much, Joan. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 a.m., WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Very recently, I had a conversation with Trina Reynolds-Tyler, who's the director of data for the Invisible Institute, and Sarah Conway, who's the senior reporter with the City Bureau. They put together a report, a series, an investigative series called Missing in Chicago. And for those of you who didn't hear the original conversation, what this looked at particularly was missing women, particularly missing women of color. We had a conversation about the report. We just started to get into some of the recommendations and solutions, and we ran out of time. So I beseech them to please come back so that we could continue our conversations. Welcome, Trina. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. Thank you. Hey. Before, I don't want to assume that who's ever listening to us now heard our entire conversation the first time around, but I don't want to have that whole conversation again. So um, let's, um, Trina, you start. I'd like both of you to kind of give me the cliff's notes on your investigative series. Trina, you, you get started. Thanks so much. So um, in 2021, we began a project called Beneath the Surface, which used machine learning to parse through police misconduct records. We were able to identify about 2054 police misconduct records related to missing persons cases. And, and that began our dive deep into, you know, putting the pieces together. We were able to interview law enforcement, community members, community stakeholders. And what we ultimately learned was that officers were, um, uh, were, were denying people missing persons reports. They were misclassifying missing persons cases as non criminal in nature. And we actually found that they closed four cases before actually finding the person, including two cases where a black teenage girl was later found murdered. Um, Sarah, do you have any other thoughts on that? Yes, we um, found through our reporting that there's a big desire 
by community members and impacted families um, and even some police themselves to look outside of the traditional policing system to um, find more support for families and also to find ways to deal with some of the underlying public health issues that really drive this crisis of missingness that disproportionately impacts Black girls and women um, and Black people in Chicago. One of the data findings that we have from our reporting is that Black girls between the ages of 10 and 20 make up 2% of Chicago's population. They represent 30% of all missing persons cases reported to the Chicago Police Department in the state. And so one of the things we were really trying to understand in our reporting is, you know, how PD handles these cases, any, um, you know, disparities that families experience, and really uncovering a pattern of neglect and incompetence and illegal behavior from police officers healing missing persons cases. We... Um we talked about this before, but one thing that you just said, Sarah, uh, sparked my interest. You said that that some of the people involved in this really felt that that there was an, um, a need to sort of um, get resources outside of the system. If if I understood you correctly, uh, that was that was what you said. What did you mean by that, and what does that look like? Sure, that's a really great question, John. So. That was something that came up. Um, spent, you know, it can be challenging to have the Chicago Police Department official media voices speak to you, um, but we found in our reporting that police officers themselves, um, you know, are willing to speak to media and kind of share what their own experience is like. And there's a divergence sometimes between what the official narrative is from CPD and what individual detectives and officers are experiencing in their work. And one of the things we heard from um, police officers, uh, and, you know, working on missing persons cases in Chicago is that they're very overwhelmed with the number of cases and um, they're dealing with, you know, what one police official, a national police official that we interviewed had described as sort of a dinosaur system in CPD. CPD uses a paper-based system for handling missing persons cases. In fact, it's one of the last remaining paper-based forms that CPD has. And that really can, um, you know, this pipeline you say, you, has so a lot of impact. Like, they're not on their computer and this doesn't tie into a database. They're like, they're like filling out forms. Eventually yeah. it becomes a database, but it, it is then hand entered. So most huh. from, from our reporting, we found that almost all of CPD's form, we, this is the last remaining one, have been digitized except for the missing persons case. It's still a paper-based form. Um, and that means that, a, a you know, a, a beat cop usually will fill it out and then it goes through by hand, eventually being entered into um, being digitized. Um, what law, so, sorry to jump in here, but what law enforcement, you know, uh, you know, uh, former law enforcement Patricia Casey told us is the importance of not only digitizing the system, but also inputting some kind of human trafficking screening, just coming back to the question that you had earlier about expanding it beyond um, beyond police, the, the issue that people who are returning from um, being missing face is that, you know, law enforcement, what we've heard is like law enforcement say is like no one's going to tell them if they 
participated in a crime. And often survival work, right, human trafficking, for example, you know, it is um, often survivors of human trafficking are victim blamed and ultimately, you know, um, held accountable for for a crime that maybe they committed while in survival mode, mm-hmm. being outside, you know, outside in the street, using their body as a resource because they don't have anywhere else to go, whether it be to get housing or to get food. Oof. Um, anything else that you guys want to add to our summary discussion of what you found, because then I want to take a break and we're going to go into solution mode and and what we do right. So any any last uh, thing about your reporting that we didn't touch on here? I mean, I, I think, think the biggest thing. Oh, ahead, I'm sorry, Sarah. So mm-hmm. Trina Trina Reynolds Tyler here. One of the biggest things we found is like although this issue impacts. You know, although predominantly black women and girls are in the data, this is an issue that is a part of the a faulty missing persons pipeline. So it is going to impact every race, every zip code in this way, because the system itself is not equipped to respond in a way that prevents someone from going missing in a way that supports people who are maybe running away from abusive situations and um, looking for more resources, but again, forced into survival work. Go ahead, Sarah. No, I, I, the only thing that I would add, and thank you for saying that, Trina, um, this is Sarah Conway, is that it's important to, you know, look forward to solutions and we're excited to speak about those with you, Joan, because um, we found, you know, in general that CPD is the state entity that's really tasked with handling this crisis. And, you know, we heard a lot of interesting ideas from everyone from legislators to police themselves to impacted families about some ways that we could do things differently that might be, you know, really help individuals impacted um, when loved ones go missing. I'm speaking with Trina Reynolds-Tyler, who's the director of data at the Invisible Institute, and Sarah Conway, senior reporter at the City Bureau. They put together an investigative series, Missing in Chicago. When we come back for a break, we're going to talk about some of the solutions that their reporting suggests. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Trina Reynolds-Tyler and Sarah Conway. They did an investigative series on young women who were, well, people who were missing, but a large percentage of the missing in Chicago tend to be young women of color. And the cases are often closed before there's any real resolution. Cases closed where the young woman is found murdered. Uh, Cases closed where... The woman has never been found. It is um, it's shining a light on uh, an area that hasn't received a lot of love and attention um, from politicians or people in uh, the administration 
or even people in the police department. And for it to function better, there need to be some changes made. One of the parts of this investigative report are a number of solutions that would make this process just run better. Um, let's talk about the first one. The fact that there should be a unit that just does this kind of work. Sarah, start us off with that. Sure. Um, you know, when we spoke with uh, former law enforcement officials, uh, law, en- law enforcement officials around the country, as well as um, BPD detectives and cops, um, one of the things that was made clear to us was that Within the Chicago Police Department, all missing persons cases are handled by the Special Victims Unit. So the detectives in the Special Victims Unit don't exclusively work on missing persons cases. And one of the suggestions that we did hear for people who support, you know, um, doing some type of, uh, you know, reform within CPD with handling missing persons cases was to have a unit that's dedicated to looking into missing persons cases to be able to have detectives more time on these cases, provide more care to families, and to, um, you know, be able to respond quicker. Um, That was one of the issues that we had heard from family members was that, you know, oftentimes families, Black families that we interviewed, they talked about that sometimes they would call detectives and they never hear back, or they would call you know, sometimes for weeks, and they wouldn't be able to hold, be able to get a hold of the detective assigned to the case. Um, we had heard, you know, people hadn't heard from the detective assigned to the case for years, and so there's a real feeling that amongst families that we had interviewed that, you know, they weren't receiving the care or the services that their taxes support, um, and you know, they suspected it was because their loved one was not only a woman and a girl, but a black woman and girl, um, and they felt that. You know, uh, they not receiving the care that they uh, needed in that in, in finding their loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, when we spoke to police who have handled missing persons cases, one of the issues that they pointed out to us is that you know there is burnout is real within the Chicago Police Department that detectives can have you know feel overburdened with cases, and also you know there are many um, there. This is not something that we were able to definitively prove in data, but um, there was a perspe- perception amongst police that we had spoken to that many of the children who run away are runaways from state care. And that was actually something that we had heard from police themselves was that, you know, we ask police to do everything and it's just not possible for them to do that. Mm-hmm. And so we had had, you know, heard suggestions from police themselves that, it would be great if there was another entity, maybe DCFS itself, um, maybe some type of civilian-run entity that would, you know, handle cases of missing, looking for um, young children who might be running from state care. Um, because that's the issue that was kind of brought up over and over again when we had talked to police, that they feel overburdened with cases and they don't have the technology, like the data systems. Um, they're still using a paper-based form or, you know, the capacity to really handle these cases. So I think, you know, as reporters healing all these positions, it's sort of a balance of um, looking outside of policing to deal with some of the, the problems and issues that we're looking at, and then also looking within policing and thinking about what are smart solutions that people within the entity of CPD already have to kind of improve how they're doing their work. Mm-hmm. Um 
And uh, Trina, what are some of those things that are already employed that are helping them do their work? Um, what are some of the things that are already employed? Yeah, that Sarah just referenced. Um, Sarah, you're saying something? Sure, I think, yeah, I think like, you know, sure, of course. One of the things is, I think, the digitization of the missing persons form. Um, You know, it is not digitized by CPD, and it's something that we know from our reporting actually reformers within the Chicago Police Department for years have been trying to get the form digitized. We had heard, you know, if that is digitized, that it would, you know, speed up potentially having detectives assigned. Um, when Trina would look at the missing persons data, one of the things that we would see is sometimes it would take a week or even weeks for a detective to get assigned to a case. And Do you guys have you know, any idea why else- that is? Just because... <laughs> Is this does this relate to I know we we did a lot of uh, forums when the mayor's race was going on and everybody was talking about how I believe that Chicago was down 1700 detectives, people who had quit or retired and just simply hadn't been replaced. Um, if the, well, if we hired those people, would that help this situation? Well, it's interesting. What we've been told by law enforcement is that they're being that, that within policing is pretty um, political and, and that they're experiencing pressure from the top down to focus on things like homicides because mm-hmm. getting lots of lots of, you know, um, um, attention in the media. But that attitude dismisses the fact that, you know, some missing persons cases ultimately become homicides in other cities, you know, in other police um in other police agencies across the nation, the missing persons unit is actually nested within the homicide unit um, oh. because, because there is a because of this cross reference. Now, of course, there's a reason why special victims unit is also connected to missing persons, because often people who are reported missing are special victims. Um, so there has to be some kind of nuanced way for whatever newer unit, you know, that that exists. To, to 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 be specialized in gender-based violence specifically. Um, and then, you know, and identify some of the root causes why people are going missing. Earlier when you asked me the things that they currently employ, I was thinking like, well, actually, you know, it's, it's pretty frustrating. CPD is not currently employing lots of resources towards missing persons. When we ask them about what they're doing on the issue, they say they're working for transparency within community. In 2017, there was a a city council public safety committee meeting that was called where officers, you know, showed up. Thomas Wimmer, Commander Jones, Sergeant Coleman. And they said, you know, 99.9% of juveniles return or are located. But, you know, again, Sarah and I, within that 2000 to 2016 number they were talking about, that 99.9, we found two cases where law enforcement prematurely closed the case. And so a big part of this issue is the attitude towards missing persons. It's like people assume that officers assume, well, this person ran away. They don't want to be found. Mm -hmm. I'm not put energy and resources into finding someone who doesn't want to be found. But the question is, who are they running from and why are they running? And what are the ways that resources can be utilized in order to catch people who may otherwise be missing? Yeah. Um, Let's talk 
Um, well, you know, and also this idea of forming a dedicated missing persons unit, um, just as in journalism where people specialize, like Trina, you specialize in data. When you specialize in something, you get really good at it. And you, you know, you have, you bring a level of expertise to the table that might not otherwise exist. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's really important because missing persons has a specific, there are specific underlying issues that we in our reporting were able to, uh, to witness mental health crises, intimate partner violence, even gun violence, right? Instances where, um, folks were, um, were experiencing a crisis and there was signals and signs of it much beforehand. Um, but it wasn't, you know, but, but whereas these detectives weren't really taking the, you know, taking initiative on it. I do want to call upon the story of Sonia Rouse specifically. And of, of course, Daisy Hayes, two missing women whose bodies have not been found. Um, officers, law enforcement, two separate law enforcement officers, you know, uh, talked about, well, these, you know, these women had substance use abuse issues. Like, you know, one officer talked about how Daisy Hayes is, um, Daisy Hayes frequented the liquor store as a means of being dismissive of her case. You know, in the case of Sonia Rouse, you know, she was 50 years old when she was reported missing. She was experiencing intimate partner violence. Her mom had picked her up previously from her boyfriend's house two times before she was ultimately missing. Now, Detective Yaversky, who's still on the force today, he he actually, you know, he he was aware of all of these things, but he failed to interview the guy who Sonia was last seen with. In fact, he could have, because this guy was in the care, in IDOC, like he was in a work release parole program, he could have interviewed, you know, this man in Statesville prison. He decided not to, and he waited so long that this guy actually died. And so the last guy who saw Sonia Rouse missing is not even able for an interview. When you look at Detective Yaversky's police misconduct records, you see that he himself has allegations of domestic violence against not only his wife, but also his daughter. The uh. documents. Her family was really frustrated, like, okay, so not only did this officer drag his feet on the case, but also this officer has a history, a documented history within CPD of being a perpetrator of violence. And their daughter was a survivor of violence. They thought, how does this, how do these things, the lack of police accountability also play a role in the willingness of officers to, to, you know, do the work, get on the ground and, and actually, you know, do the interviews necessary to find their loved one. This is such an important topic. And um, go ahead real quickly, Sarah, because we're really close to sure. being out of time. Sure. I know. The, the one thing I wanted to add to kind of close up the conversation is that Mayor Brandon Johnson did, you know, pledge to establish a missing persons initiative that would, train civilians in trauma-informed um, crisis response mm -hmm. um, during his uh, campaign. And, you know, it's something we followed up on. It's an interest of the administration. They are, they are figuring out what that might look like. But that desire to have civilian response is something that we also found in interviewing other community members and impacted families. Um, you know, we spoke with retired homicide Detective Gerald Hamilton, who volunteers his time after retiring from CPD to look for missing black women and girls um, 
in Chicago. And one of the things that he brought up um, is that, you know, a lot of families have to turn to their neighbors, their own community when a loved one goes missing because they feel no one is actually looking for them. And one of the things he had, you know, brought up as um, something that would be great is to actually provide funding and support and training for Chicagoans to better support one another when they have loved ones go missing. It's something that we actually see I, in Montana, I gotta jump which in. has a. I'm sorry, we are we are very much okay. out of time, and I'm uh, we're going to get cut <laughs> off by the computer here pretty quick. Um, obviously, you it's guys okay. are so we love passionate. You, Thanks and for having you, us on. Yeah, you've done such great work here. Trina Reynolds, Tyler, and Sarah Conway. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's doing it uh, for me. I will not be in tomorrow. I will see you Monday at 2 o'clock. Now uh, we're going to go to the Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez show, but I think she is also not here and has a guest host. I will see you Monday. Good night.